1: Here in New York joining us, I'm pleased to say, is Kate Moore, BlackRock Investment Institute Chief Equity Strategist. Good morning to you, Kate.
2: Good morning.
1: What should we be looking for a little bit later from Chairman Pound & Co.?
3: So I think the equity market and kind of risk assets in general have become uh, pretty comfortable and complacent with the idea that monetary policy is going to stay accommodative forever and ever and ever. So I think the biggest thing to watch is going to be for equity markets, the dot plot. I think for kind of broader markets and fixed income, we're gonna be focused a lot on the balance sheet and reinvestment and the composition, um, the treasury composition, which is a little bit more technical. But in general, equity investors, and I would say risk asset investors broadly, want to see that monetary policy is not gonna move much or, slash, at all in the yeah. near term.
2: But
0: here's my question When is bad news bad news again? I mean, when is the idea that the Fed is being cautious because the economy really does not have the strength that many people thought that it did? Uh, when is that bad news for risk assets? Yeah, that's, that's a really important question. You know, for
3: a large portion of the last 10 years, we've been in this cycle where, uh, you know, markets stop panicking when policymakers start panicking. You know, as long as policymakers have our back, it doesn't matter that the data is bad. Or or the data has softened, or that activity has slowed, or that we're talking about a new growth regime. And, and you know I'm a little worried that we're back there again, because a few years ago, we were really hopeful the markets would be focused on fundamentals. Let's talk about activity, let's talk about earnings, let's talk about the real idiosyncratic opportunities. And we're back to obsessing about monetary policy language body language uh you know uh, who's taught had coffee with who and what that could potentially mean for stimulus around the world so this is a fair question i just don't think that we're going to get there in the second quarter
1: so let's talk about fundamentals if we can we have the opportunity to do so this morning how are they how are earnings expectations for the rest of the year
3: not great, John. I mean, this is the, this is the this is the problem. Most of the returns from the equity market in 2019 have come from multiple expansion. You have higher prices and lower earnings expectations, um, and we really need to turn around in fundamentals. I think in order to carry the market meaningfully higher in the second quarter, it's like hard to get to a 12% return in the second quarter if it, it's not driven by earnings and it's just driven by a re-rating.
0: So, a lot of people would actually disagree, and they would say that stocks have actually been held back by the trade tensions and the ongoing concerns about Brexit, et cetera. You disagree? I think that trade concerns, concerns over Chinese growth,
3: concerns over U.S. growth, concerns over policy mistakes, I mean, we could make a long list. We're all really putting pressure, downward pressure, on risk assets in the fourth quarter. Okay, but some of that has eased, and we've gotten to—we worry actually a little bit. We've gotten to a little bit of a complacent point where we don't really worry so much about trade. We think some of the risk there has is not being properly priced. That uh, people are not as worried about growth, and as I mentioned, are expecting a lot of monetary and fiscal stimulus from all different regions of the world concurrently in 2019. And so, you know it we we need to see a little bit more volatility. We need to see a
0: little bit more of like fundamental driven markets. So this is actually where I was going to go. I was looking at the move index. This is the Bank of America Merrill Lynch uh, option volatility uh, index, and it's fallen to its lowest level on record. Yeah, this is the implied volatility in Treasury yields over the next three months. I'm just wondering, is this dangerous? Is this sending a warning signal about complacency uh, and sort of signaling that there could be some kind of more violent move in the very near future? You know, the volatility markets in general have been really difficult,
3: right? I mean, you think about the last couple of years, we keep on making new lows. Sometimes it's really difficult to explain why. What I can say in general is that there seems to be, on the equity side, very light participation in the rally more recently. People have yeah. been fading that risk, have been taking down their winners. You know, if they were in the market and it well positioned at the start of this year because of the D rating last year and because they felt like the baby was getting thrown out with the bathwater, uh, They have been systematically taking their, their um, equity exposure down. We see this in fund flows from a number of different providers. We see this in terms of uh, overall ETF flows for the best performing parts of the market. And so, you know, it it has all of us scratching our heads. I wish I had a better answer on vol, whether it was the equity or the, um, you know, treasury option vol. But it it does feel like it should rise a little bit.
1: Long Fed patience, short volatility. It's been the trade of the last three months. And in the words of Bank of America, the pain trade for stocks is still up. Yes. Yes. Do you agree with that? There is simply no greed to sell in equities. That's the line from Bank of America. It sounds like to some degree, it resonates with you, Kate.
3: There is some sympathy. You know, full disclosure, I used to work on that team uh, some years ago now. So I'm very familiar with the pain rate is higher view. Um, From a fund flows perspective, I think that's right. From a flows and positioning and technicals perspective, you can make some of that argument. Uh, From a valuation's perspective, I think we're neutral. You know, we've re-rated back to a level that, that feels fair with a, um, you know, an economic and macro backdrop where we're still having growth, albeit at a slower pace, where monetary and fiscal policy looks more supportive than it did six months ago. Uh, but the fundamentals is what I keep on getting hung, hung up on. It's the earnings story. The fact that the earnings revision ratios are the weakest in three years yeah. and are not abating. So,
0: Kate, where is the biggest opportunity in mm-hmm. equities right now?
3: Well, so... Quality has performed very well in 2019, but I think this is still a, an opportunity for quality. We're really focused on kind of secular growers. And so that takes us to technology and healthcare, which I know had been very consensus sectors, but frankly, deliver. They deliver on earnings. They're delivering on consistency of earnings. Their balance sheets are great. And I really wanna own companies that you know have the ability to uh, continue to expand even in a slowing growth environment. So you know, that's kind of our favorite bit. And we're also pretty excited about emerging markets still.
1: Hey, Kate, Um, great to catch up with you. As always, thanks for dropping by. Kate Moore, BlackRock Investment Institute Chief Equity Strategist on the pain trade and a whole lot more. Forecasting patience. That is what investors expect from the Federal Reserve later today. Unchanged. That is what investors expect to happen with interest rates. The news conference is where the focus will be with Chairman Powell and the summary of economic projections, all of the forecasts for the economy, including where each and every individual policymaker on the FOMC Expects rates to be in nineteen twenty and perhaps beyond two. Let's bring in the team, shall we, to get their forecast, their outlook, and the day's guide for Federal Reserve Decision Day. Carl Rickadonna, Bloomberg Economics, Chief US economist. And on the phone from Washington, DC, he will be in the room with Chairman Powell a little bit later. Michael McKee, International Economics and Policy Correspondent. Mike, you get the honors, sir. Give me the outlook, the day's guide for the Federal Reserve.
4: Well, really, what Wall Street is looking for is for no mistakes, no deviation from the Wall Street line, which is the Fed's on hold, and there's no danger of them uh, raising rates this year. Uh, not likely to get an absolute view from Jay Powell, but I think he'll be as cautious as possible, not try to say anything that will lead them to think one way or the other the Fed may change policy this year. Um, we're going to see in new forecasts for growth and inflation. They'll have to be marked down a little bit, but enough to justify a major move in the dots. Uh, not clear.
0: All right, so uh, come on in here, call Rickadana, because right now I'm looking at the warp function on the Bloomberg terminal showing that there is a 37% chance of a rate cut come January 2020, zero chance of a rate hike. Uh, Again, this cycle probably. Is this something the Fed likes seeing?
5: I don't think they like seeing that uh, high of a probability of a rate cut at the start of next year. Uh, That's not really their intention at the moment, uh, and I suspect the dot plot will lean against that. Now, the Fed's in a bit of a difficult uh, bind here because if they're too optimistic on uh, the economic outlook, then they risk a repeat of December uh, where the markets viewed the Fed as having a a tin ear uh, to signs of uh, economic strain. That being said, if they really focus on uh, acknowledging weakness in recent data like retail sales, like the last payroll report, uh, then they're going to push those rate cut probabilities even higher. Uh, and if that's not their intention to start cutting rates next year, which I don't believe it is, uh, then this creates a significant communications challenge that they're going to have to address uh, later this year. So yeah. that being said, I think they may be on the side of caution with respect to sounding too dovish. Uh, because they don't want to reinforce that uh, that rate cut. But Mike uh, raised an
1: important question yesterday. When you and I caught up, Mike, you said, what does the Federal Reserve do if inflation expectations remain low or, in fact, go lower? Do we have any idea,
4: Mike? no we don't at this point they haven't been able to generate inflation they're talking longer term about changing some of their policy regimes but that's not going to come up today so the question is what is their inflation outlook and what drives it because nobody seems to have a way to get inflation up to or above 2% except hope that the Phillips curve actually holds we're waiting on that right now and uh, we haven't seen any evidence that it's happening We're getting stronger wage growth we've got cycle high wage growth but it's not feeding into the inflation indexes.
0: Although, Carl, uh, Chair Powell did say that he thinks that some inflation, some wage pressures in particular, are uh, greater than are being reflected by the data. Is there any sign that we actually are starting to see a return of the Phillips curve?
5: I think we're seeing the early stages. Uh, Mike's right that it's not uh, showing up in the inflation uh, data just yet, Uh, but we've only recently seen the pickup in wage pressures. It really started around November of last year. Uh, Amazon had the minimum wage increase. A lot of retailers uh, uh, followed uh, suit. And uh, from November uh, through uh, February, you saw a pretty significant acceleration in average hourly earnings in the jobs report. Uh, That number may actually underrepresent what's happening in the broader economy because it reflects a lot of... uh uh, I hate to use uh, the term lower quality, but the uh, lower skilled, lower quality jobs, which tend to be lower paying, uh, and that tends to uh, deflate uh, the number overall. So we're seeing wage pressure show up, and it's a matter of time uh, for that to percolate through the system. So Mike says uh, we're not seeing signs of the Phillips curve uh, uh, working. I would uh, add a, a footnote to that. We're not seeing it just yet, but I think we will see it later this year. It's too soon for the F- Fed to uh, start focusing on that because they want the data uh, to really lead the way. But I I do suspect with the economy growing above trend and wage pressures at a post-recession high, we will see more consumer inflation later this year and that will put the Fed Back into play,
0: and 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 to that point, the fact that we are getting some kind of melting in trade tensions also feeds into this. Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent in Washington D.C., uh, come on in here and talk a little bit about how that thawing backdrop, the increase in stimulus from the PBOC in China, uh, may complicate the issue for the Federal Reserve right now.
4: Well, one of the Fed's lines over the last year uh, or last couple of months, put it that way, in terms of. Uh, the idea of being on hold is that economic conditions around the world have slowed and therefore that puts a break on U.S. economic growth possibilities. Uh, we're seeing some signs that uh, maybe we're getting a little bit of a pickup in Europe. And then China has been flooding its economy with stimulus. If that works and if Europe picks up, then we're going to see uh, additional growth in the United States. And uh, that's another factor they have to take into account. What it really comes down to is question of timing. Uh, The Fed uh, believes that the economy is going to pick up and that will generate more inflation, but when does it do that and how does it signal it? Ordinarily, the Fed, or up to this point, the Fed has wanted to be ahead of the economic developments, ahead of the idea of inflation, but now they're sort of having to wait because Wall Street doesn't trust them to do that. Although, and Carl may want to weigh in on this, uh, we are seeing break-evens start to rise. So there is a little bit of inflation being priced into the markets that kind of hasn't been reflected in sentiment yet. Mike
5: makes a very good point there, Rod, The the Fed doesn't want to be leading the way here.
4: What is this? Group love? Come on. (laughs) There's always group love with uh, me and
5: Mike McKee. Uh, But uh, the Fed uh, tried to lead a little too hard uh, back in December, and uh, we saw what the market outcome was. Uh, So now the Fed has been chastened by that experience, uh, and now is going to let the market uh, kind of beg for rate increases, and the Fed will not be overly concerned about being perceived as being behind the curve, uh, and then happily delivering what the market is asking for, and that'll be far less disruptive. Uh, I do think we could see that start to materialize in the back half of the year. Mike, you'll be in the news conference later.
1: First question for Chairman Powell from you. What is it?
4: Well, it depends on what they say, but basically you'd be looking for um, what is the, what would make them change their patient strategy. There's a lot of different ways you can ask that question, but is there something that they're looking at that the market can look at to get an idea of what the Fed reaction function is going to be?
0: Basically, uh, you don't want to give away your your secret sauce, right? You're not going to give away your question. Um, well,
4: you kind of got to know what they're going to do before you ask what they do. No, did. it's all preconceived. Now, uh,
5: Carl, what would be the question you'd want to ask Chair Powell? Uh, I, I. Pepper him on the issue of uh, what would get the Fed back into play, because it's a pretty subtle change in forecast that has shifted them from a world where they were looking for two rate hikes this year and one rate hike next year uh, to a world where they're on uh, perma pause. And really, that's the difference of uh, GDP growth shifting from two and a half to two inflation shifting from something just above two down to two, unemployment rate uh, shifting from three and a half up to four for their outlook. Uh, So it's not going to take a lot in a a change, a mild upward surprise in the economy, uh, to really get them back to the type of forecast they were looking at in September and December of last year, uh, when they, in fact, were uh, expecting uh, additional rate hikes. The one thing I would highlight here, right, the real... Fed funds rate, the inflation-adjusted interest rate, uh, is about 0.3 right now. Uh, the economy has never rolled over with real interest rates so low. So we're still uh, a long way from the Fed actually stepping on the brake pedal. Conor Rickadonna, great to catch up with you.
1: Sure thing. As always, uh, no doubt you'll be a busy man a little bit later. Bloomberg Economics, chief U.S. economist. He's on busy the right now. From Washington, D.C. Um, he's not really. He enjoys this. This is leisure time. So
0: if you enjoy, you're not busy.
1: He he got got to work about 10 minutes ago and it dropped by the studio.
0: Are you going to thank Michael McKee? It's not
1: work if you love what you're you're interrupting me from Washington. He's busy already. He's working. Michael McKee, international economics and policy correspondent because he hates this. (laughs) Carl and Mike, great to catch up with you both.
0: The well, one place where you are seeing real stimulus is China, uh, where the PBOC has doubled back and is adding to uh, what uh, what they had been cutting back on. What's interesting to me, yesterday Bloomberg reported uh, that Canada's biggest pension is actually uh, considering opening an office in Beijing over the next year as they try to expand their holdings in the region. Uh, joining us now, Teresa Kong, uh, Matthews, Asia Head of Fixed Income and Portfolio uh, Management here in our Bloomberg Interactive uh, studios, Teresa, do you think that this is a good time to be plowing into, in particular, China?
6: Absolutely. I think it's a very strategic decision on the part of the largest pension fund in Canada. I think there are several catalysts. First, there will be inclusion of China into the global ag which I think is going to be transformative for bond investing. As we all know, MSCI will be adding China as well in in actually greater steps than had previously announced. So I think CPP, and I'm guessing it's CPPC. It um, is, (laughs) ding, 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 ding. (laughs) Um, Will in fact, you know, be looking back at this 10 years from now and congratulating themselves in terms of being very forward looking.
1: Theresa, let's talk about how you're managing your exposure to Asian markets at the moment. What do you do when you have this really strong rally in global markets but there's very little sign in stability in the fundamentals? How do you reconcile those two things at the moment?
6: Well, I think what the market's doing right now is pricing out a lot of potential tail risks. So, for example, first, let's start with the Fed. As you had already mentioned, most people are expecting that the Fed is more likely to actually cut as opposed to raise rates. I think the European Central Bank has also been quite clear that growth is not there. And therefore, they're also going to be, you know, continue to provide stimulus. So those are two big tail risks out. And then last but not least, certainly everyone's looking at the trade talks and hoping for some type of resolution. Even if it's a short term trade resolution without a long term resolution on all the other areas like intellectual property, I do think that the market will really be breathing a sign of relief even with that. You know,
0: it's interesting because when people say that they're they're going into China and buying assets right now, I have to wonder how the recent uptick in defaults, corporate defaults, plays into this. The fact that the PBOC, that China is allowing companies and even some local governments to actually start to fail to pay their bills. And I'm wondering, how does that factor into how you invest in the region?
6: That's a great point. You know, to be sure, defaults in China will continue to slowly increase. The important point to take away here is that defaults are a necessary evil. In all developed markets, spreads price in the default risk, and arguably China is actually not completely pricing in the expected future default risk. So this is what we call the credit spread. So I, I think it's really important to realize that you know these defaults will continue to slowly take up. Um, the other thing I just want to mention is that you know China is really the only country where I constantly hear headlines about the total notional amount of defaults. Nowhere else in the world do we talk about notional defaults. So if you actually put in a denominator and if you actually take out all of the government debt and all the policy bank bond debt, so which you know are arguably truly sovereign risk, but if you could include everything else, the actual default rate in China, when we measure it with that denominator, is about 0.6% which is still substantially below where the rest of the world is, which is, you know, about hovering between one and a half to 2%.
0: That's a good point. I think that the fear is that this is the tip of the iceberg, number one, because the defaults are just starting uh, to pick up and, and, the, and the government is just allowing them to actually happen. That's number one. But number two, the amount of corporate debt, uh, especially given the shadow banking system in China, is materially larger than some of the official numbers are stating. And there is concern, especially given the fact that the PBOC itself was ratcheting back its stimulus because they were concerned about the growth in leverage the fact that they are backtracking and relevering is also a concern is that a problem for you
6: I think it's really important to continue to monitor the state of monetary policy as well as fiscal policy to be sure you know China has taken one step forward and one step back with respect to deleveraging and it's certainly true that the defaults taking up has an impact on what we do. But arguably, what we've actually been looking forward to um, are actual corporate spreads to actually widen, to take into account this future default risk. I would also like to make the distinction between the different types of debt. You know, a lot of times people talk about China in one big breath, but it's really important to point out that there are corporates Completely private held enterprises where we do think defaults will certainly pick up because of access to capital, as you had pointed out. There's the what I call gray area. A lot of the state-owned enterprises are really part of the mixed economy. Privately held somewhat, yeah. um, state-owned somewhat, but also, you know, some of these are actually have have public traded stock. And then last but not least, there are the what I call MUNI slash LGFEs, local government bonds. With respect to the SOEs, this is where real credit analysis really needs to take place because a company that is strategically very important at the national level should not be priced the same as a municipal as a excuse me as a as a company that is doing let's say some type of natural resource extraction that could be detrimental to the future of the environmental policies of China. And then last but not least, I do think that local government debt might trigger technical defaults, but until a legal framework is in place, whereby there's a bankruptcy remoteness to the municipalities, I don't really see that area actually picking up in terms of defaults.
1: Hey Teresa, great to catch up with you. Really insightful stuff. Teresa Kong there, Matthews Asia Head of Fixed Income and Portfolio Managers. Let's get the view from London, shall we? Bloomberg Opinion columnist Therese Raphael joining us now. On the phone from London, Therese, get us up to speed. The Prime Minister wants to take this to the 30th of June. Will the EU say OK?
2: So the EU has a decision to make, and that is which risk they think is worse. Is it a a risk of no-deal Brexit happening or the risk of Britain uh, being part of messy European parliamentary elections that... uh, would leave it staying in the European Union for a longer period of time and um, uh, you know, and, and possibly complicating the way EU policy works. I think the, the European Union is likely to grant the short extension. I think that, that we can pretty much assume is going to happen. The question is what conditions they'll put on it and whether they will rule out a longer extension if May's deal doesn't get through Parliament, which he intends to resubmit um, if not next week, then, um, uh, then later this month.
0: So I'm looking at the pound right now. Uh, it did fall to session lows after this came out that uh, Theresa May was just looking for a three-month extension. Why do you think, why, why is this a bearish sign for uh, for the sterling?
2: Right, because it creates a new fetch. So just last week, um, we were all relieved to hear that the parliament voted against having a no-deal exit. They voted in no uncertain terms. But that didn't really take no-deal off the table because it's on the statute book. And what um, what May has been forced to do is is against her will is to ask for only a short extension and not a longer extension. So that creates another cliff edge at the end of uh, June. If if the European Union doesn't agree to extend the extension or if Parliament doesn't pass her deal, we still are faced with the possibility that Britain leaves Uh, with no deal at all. And, and, you know, that's a very bearish sign. Now, the caveat here is Parliament could step in and try to take control. They could try to pass an amendment to her motion the next time she submits her deal that says, you know, um, we voted not to to leave without a deal, and therefore, uh, you know, they could pass a vote of no confidence. They could try to to vote in favour of a second referendum. So it doesn't mean automatically no deal would happen at the end of June, but it clearly leaves that as a possibility.
1: Another layer of complexity to all of this, the leader of the opposition party, Labour's Jeremy Corbyn, demanding a confirmation referendum on a Brexit deal. Therese, what is that?
2: (laughs) Well, Corbyn has been... um, you know, officially in favor of a second referendum as his party's position. If they couldn't get a general election, personally he hates the idea. He he, you know, would like to see Brexit happen. He uh, would like to see this government fall. So a confirmation referendum sort of splits the difference. It says, well, you know, whatever. If her deal gets through, we'll support her deal. But then we want it to put it to the people, and that's going to be hugely controversial because hardline conservatives you who. Know, uh, are uh, pro-Brexit, who even want to see a no-deal Brexit, are going to be opposed to a referendum that allows Remain to be an option, which yeah. is what Corbyn is basically suggesting.
0: So, Therese, how does John fill it fit into this, the idea that he was holding up another vote on a procedural issue? Does that matter
2: anymore? Well, I mean, Bercow's been a hugely important figure throughout this whole um, you know, the whole Brexit saga because he's the one who decides what amendments get selected. Um, He refused, uh, well, cited a a 17th century convention to tell May that she couldn't submit her, her deal to Parliament unless it substantially changed. It's still important because it's Burkeau that decides what, what constitutes substantially. She might say, okay, well, we changed the end date, so that's a, that's, it's now a new agreement. It, well, we leave on June 30th and not March 29th, and he could come back and say, well, that's not substantial enough. So he's still a key figure, a controversial figure, Um, And, uh, you know, it will be keen to decide really when her deal comes back before Parliament.
1: Therese, always great to catch up with you to get your insight. Therese Raphael there, Bloomberg Opinion Columnist, bringing us some much needed clarity on the Brexit situation.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.